This is episode 247 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Neurological Disorders with Dr. Thomas Durkin. Hey everybody, we are Daylon and Arun. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. The Stem Cell Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you enjoy the Stem Cell Podcast, rate us and leave a review. We're always looking for feedback on how the podcast can be improved and for suggestions on guests. Today, we have Dr. Thomas Durkin from The Neuro. He's on the podcast to talk about his research applying patient-derived stem cells toward the development of phenotypic discovery assays and 3D neuronal organoid models for neurodegenerative and neurodevelopmental disorders. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news that's coming right up. But first, join us in person at the New York Stem Cell Foundation Research Institute for a unique first-of-its-kind live recording of the Stem Cell Podcast. We'll converse with three NYSEF leaders advancing efforts to take down obstacles in stem cell research. And the event's going to be held pretty soon, August 3rd at 5 p.m. at the NYSEF Research Institute in New York City. RSVP at www.nysef.org. That's nyscf.org slash events slash stem cell dash podcast. And yeah, we can't wait to be there over in your neck of the woods in beautiful, bustling New York City. And I'm going to jump into a paper that's uh, going back in time a little bit, I suppose. It is a SARS-CoV-2 modeling paper. I thought we were done covering COVID, but I think this is a, it's an important study and it's relevant to some of the early developmental models that we've been talking about and that, of course, have taken the field by storm over the last few years and have been at the forefront of the most recent ISSCR meeting. This is in Nature Cell Biology. It's titled, A Placental Model of SARS-CoV-2 Infection Reveals ACE2-Dependent Susceptibility and Differentiation Impairment in Syncytiotrophoblasts. Okay, so this is a um, interesting story coming from the lab of uh, Jose Polo. And uh, I guess it's been... Maybe it's a little bit dated since we're three years into the pandemic and hopefully, fingers crossed, in the tail end of the pandemic. But I think this is a, a really important question that they're trying to answer here. So, of course, we know that SARS-CoV-2 is the virus that infect, you know, that causes COVID-19. I Hopefully, you haven't been living under a rock and you're able to realize that by now. But um, there have been a, you know, we know what the clinical manifestations of COVID are by now. You know, a lot of folks have even gotten COVID at this point. Um, and certainly it's a respiratory virus, first and foremost, and certainly has uh, major impacts in, in that area. Um, and a lot of clinical reports have actually linked COVID during pregnancy to, to negative birth outcomes and also placentitis. But the mechanisms causing, you know, that connection are not well understood. Okay. So, does SARS-CoV-2 actually infect the placenta? And how is it actually impacting these potential alterations in fertility and and, uh, and 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 birth, negative birth outcomes? So they're trying to make that link here using some in vitro models. So to shed light on that exact possibility, they used induced trophoblast stem cells, which they have actually developed previously and published on in the Polo Lab, um, to generate an in vitro early placenta infection model. This is really neat. Um, and they actually identified that a specific subset of cells in this system, the syncytia trophoblasts, are the ones that actually can be infected using the ACE2 <laughs> receptor that we all know is one of the major 
sites of infection and internalization factors for SARS-CoV-2 virus. So um, they had developed this really cool co-culture model of vertical transmission, and they actually un ultimately confirmed the ability of the SARS-CoV-2 virus to actually infect the syncytiotrophoblast through an endometrial cell infection. So that's what they uncovered through their co-culture system here. And then they did a bunch of transcriptional analyses using single cell, of course, and uh, identified the transcriptional changes in the infected syncytiotrophoblasts that led to the impairment of cellular processes. Of course, you got to dive into the mechanism a little bit more. One interesting uh, uh, note that they, observation that they made here was that there was a reduced secretion of uh, gonadotrophin hormone, HCG, and actually morphological changes that are vital for the the syncytiotrophoblast function that are associated with the the infection, which makes sense. I mean, the SARS-CoV-2 infection, it's 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 a it's very it's virulent, right? It's pretty severe, um, especially in the case of the infected syncytiotrophoblast here, and you can impair the secretion of gonadotrophin, which is this really important molecule for pregnancy. Okay. Um, and then they looked at different antibody strategies and how <laughs> uh, remdesivir, of all drugs, can actually rescue some of these impairments that are found in the syncytiotrophoblast. So ultimately, I think a really neat model system. It's part of the reason I picked this paper is not so much from the SARS-CoV-2 COVID side of things, but more so on the early embryo models and in vitro uh, models that they're developing here. This is not an embryo model. This is a, a placental model, if anything else, um, but certainly placenta is critical for embryo development. And uh, it's neat to see that the this tangential model system is being used in this way to study SARS-CoV-2 of all things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... I think this is a really interesting story. It may seem like, you know, what well, was this cooking for three years? But uh, more, I think it was it, something that matured late. But for me, it kind of closes a loop because I remember one of the first observations that uh, were made in my center, you know, reproductive medicine close to OBGYN labor and delivery were that you would see these like accreta in the, in the placenta of a lot of the, the births. So it was one of the early indications that maybe this was like a, a vascular uh, type disease or it was manifesting a lot in the vascular system. So I think that's really interesting that they've really, uh, you know, traced that, uh, the, the pathophysiology there. And of course, yeah, I think establishing this, this model of vertical transmission um, is going to be applied now kind of routine. I think uh, it's going to be the gold standard for in vitro models of, of, of infectious disease and how it may manifest um, during in women who are pregnant and, and what the degree of risk is. I think it's going to be really important diagnostically in a future that where we're going to be seeing a lot more pandemics. Uh, well, Hopefully, I'm not a lot, not a lot more, but a, a lot more uh, <laughs> infectious disease. The way things are going, it doesn't. The future doesn't look so bright along those lines. Um, yeah, and and of course, then the 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 therapeutic element there, I think, is great because it's not just diagnostic, but you could maybe screen uh, for compounds that would allow for early intervention. So I think we're we're get, we're gearing up uh, for a future uh, silver lining here. We're between the mRNA and all the in vitro uh, embryo and other models that I think we're going to be able to hit the ground running by the time uh, these diseases really get to a point where they could disable our entire society, at least we'll have a response. So that's that's uh, the, the happy ending for me here. 
Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, like what you're alluding to, we now have the model systems to really identify the mechanistic uh, infection mechanisms of these different virus pathogens, different bacterial pathogens. And this is a really serious situation, as you alluded to, right, where, you know, a mother comes in and is infected with COVID or some other viral pathogen. Zika virus came to mind, you know, previously as well. And, you know, it's, it's such a scary situation, um, you know, worrying about the 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 safety of your unborn child and in the as a as a new parent you know it's something that was on my mind as well when you know we were expecting our first kid in the midst of covid it's something that was just absolutely terrifying so um you know having these sort of model systems to identify potential issues that could happen during pregnancy i think is is very much needed and i think it's something that could be universally applied across the board yes uh let's hope I mean, the immune response is going to be a key element in the future. And you know what immunity is governed by? This is my pivot to what I love, Arun, the blood. Immunity is comes from the blood. And one of these days, hopefully, in about a thousand years, we're going to figure out exactly how it works. You know, there's this classic model of hematopoiesis that has, you know, the dogma has stood for decades um, but recently has been shaken up and challenged by uh, evidence. You know, that classic model was the dendrogram, the lineage hierarchy. The stem cell becomes the select group of intermediate progenitors, et cetera, et cetera. Lineage specification, right? Um, but the, the, that classic model is shaken up because it's been observed now in many systems that there's a, a lot of molecular, also functional heterogeneity within the pool of uh, so-called hematopoietic stem cells. So they're they're heterogeneous, and uh, fate mapping experiments have shown that there's really a, a, a minority of uh, hematopoietic stem cells that can actually produce all the blood cells, and most of them uh, have this lineage restriction or, or bias, uh, and they also uh, differ in their proliferative capacity and, and self-renewal. Um, so there's a lot of variety within this quote-unquote hematopoietic stem cell pool. Uh, it's not just one type of cell, or it's, it's, a, it's a cell that exists ac across the spectrum. Um, but what governs and how the hematopoietic stem slash progenitor cells acquire the, that intrinsic uh, phenotypic differences uh, is not understood. Uh, and it's key to try and get at that if we're ever going to understand and control hematopoietic stem cell self-renewal uh, in vivo and disease context, you know, mobilization or suppression of, of such, or really ex vivo, uh, where expansion of hematopoietic stem cells is key to existing therapies, you know, um, for uh, transfusion and repopulation, uh, allografts, et cetera. Uh, so expansion, of course, uh, generation de novo uh, of, of hematopoietic, true hematopoietic stem cells from pluripotent cells also, holy grail. Um, but not only in adulthood, so this is the, the thing here, is that not only in adulthood, but even if you do cell tracing experiments in the arterial hematopoietic clusters during development and embryogenesis, right, uh, you see lineage biases in these uh, aortogonad mesonephrous, so-called AGM, uh, pool of hematopoietic stem cells. So like as soon as they 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 emerge, these hemogenic endothelial cells that undergo the endothelial to hematopoietic transition to give rise to those primary nascent 
the first pool of, of true repopulating hematopoietic stem cells, there's heterogeneity even at that point, even in the endothelial cells, right? So this is a study I'm describing from uh, Stefania Nicoli, who uh, is at Yale, and her lab uses zebrafish uh, to kind of unpack how small non-coding RNAs uh, play in cardiovascular and neural development. And here she's dipping in a hematopoiesis, closely related, particularly in this aorta is where she studies and development. Um, her group uses here in this nature subbiology story, they use single cell seek and this phenotypic analysis of, of these AGM ECs in this uh, a lineage priming model to, to do a little bit of discovery and then mechanism here. And, and to answer this question, how, how are these intrinsic differences acquired? Uh, they identify, they use this uh, by the single cell seq, they identify um, this microRNA-128 one, uh, that in zebrafish, if you, if you have loss of that, you get a skew uh, toward erythroid and lymphoid progenitors amongst that, among the HSC pool there. Uh, and then further, and this is, I think, really exciting talking about the conservation here, that if you then manipulate uh, this microRNA-128 in differentiating hemogenic EC, so in the actual hemogenic endothelial cells, you recapitulate that lineage skew both in zebrafish, if you go specific to the hemogenic ECs, but also in human pluripotent stem cell differentiation. And that's the key here where I got really excited about this story. And, and as if that wasn't enough, um, the the group goes on to show that it's uh, microRNA-128, it promotes Wnt and not signaling. Um, and uh, by uh, repression of this uh, Wnt inhibitor, CSNK1A1, and uh, repression of this notch ligand, jagged 1B. And then if you derepress, a really, I think, elegant mechanism here, fine work, uh, if you derepress the CSKN, the one that was linked to Wnt, you derepress that, you recapitulate that erythroid bias, right? But if you derepress the other one, the one related to notch, you recapitulate the lymphoid bias. So really, uh, in this modular fashion, uh, um, deconstructing uh, the role of microRNA in mediating this lineage bias, even at the hemogenic EC level. So I think this was really conceptually innovative, just going, showing that the, these biases exist that early, um, which I think you kind of got to reset your thinking on uh, the whole lineage diagram. Uh, it's completely blown up at this point. Um, and also, you know, some some uh, hints, uh, maybe a little some breadcrumbs to follow in the in the human ES uh, pluripotent cell system to to try and uh, figure out how we can I don't know by either repressing or, or promoting uh, the, these pathways and cells to try and get a balanced self renewing. Uh, stem progenitor cell that would really vastly open up the possibilities for uh, therapeutics uh, using IPS cells. So really exciting story, comprehensive. Uh, I, I love this story. Everyone, what was your take? Yeah, this is great. I mean, initially when you brought this up, I was like, oh, okay, they identified a mechanism in zebrafish and 
so what, <laughs> right? Because I mean, there's definitely an evolutionary disconnect between zebrafish and humans, hundreds of millions of years of divergent evolution. But then you mentioned that they brought in the human pluripotent stem cells. And I was like, oh, wow, that's really neat. Um, that I love stories like this, where so, a mechanism is identified in, you know, lower vertebrate, which ultimately is brought into the human system. That's, that's what it's all about, being able to translate some of these amazing processes uh, for example, that are found in zebrafish and that, say, Ken Poss has been working on forever, you know, um, bringing it back to the cardiac side of things. Of course, zebrafish have these amazing regenerative capacities in their hearts and the other portions of their body. And the big question is, how do you actually translate some of these discoveries and novel findings into humans and for clinical applications? Can you actually do something like that? Um, so that's one thing, just, uh, you know, the zebrafish, I'm going to go ahead and say it. I think the zebrafish is my favorite in vivo model system. And I've said this before, how much I love this thing, because for a story like this, you know, where you're talking about, you know, hematopoiesis, you have to look at lineage tracing. And that has to be such a an emphasis in this study. And indeed it was, and it was executed to, in a beautiful way because you can do incredible lineage tracing in zebrafish using genetic modification. Um, and also because it's so easy to image these things, they're pretty transparent, right? So, you know, in general, yes, I love the story. I love how it's translating a basic finding from zebrafish into a more human clinically relevant model, but just wanted to give a shout out to my BFF zebrafish there, you know? Love the zebrafish. Like I love Xenopus. Um, yeah. And not for nothing, but this is signaling pathways, right? Went and notched. So it's not something you're going to have to really break into the cell to try and modulate something that I think is struggle. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I've seen a lot of these stories where I talk around the roundup. I get really enthusiastic. I, I'm like waiting for the other shoe to drop sometimes years. Uh, and it doesn't, we're not there yet. So, uh, you know me, I'm, I'm very pessimistic about whether or not we'll ever reach that holy grail. But I, I say that we'll never do it just so I can be proven wrong. You know what I'm saying, Arun? Because I want to be wrong about this one and I, I'm ready. I've been wrong about plenty of things. Add this to the list. <laughs> yeah, no, I think the whole world hopes you're wrong about this because this would be just a tremendous, tremendous advance. I mean, ultimately, that's that is one of the holy grails that you've alluded to is bona fide differentiation of matapoidic stem cells from human pluripotent stem cells. And I think we're close. You know, we've been close for a while, but hey, this is uh, another arrow in the in the quiver, I suppose. Right. So moving on to something totally different. This is a it's it's an organoid story. It's coming from Cell Stem Cell, and it's a uh, uh, first author here is Stephen Moore, and this is coming from the lab of Ari Hashino in Indiana. Um, I believe this is where Carl Kohler trained, actually, in the Hashino lab. Um, that's right. And in that particular realm, this is a, a an ear-related story. So this is generating high-fidelity cochlear organoids from human pluripotent stem cells. Carl Kohler, we mentioned, is a, a former guest of the show and also trained in the Hashino lab and in Indiana, I believe. And this is in that area of study. Okay, this is looking at the development of the the inner ear, and in particular, mechanosensitive hair cells in the the cochlea, which is this really really cool organ. I mean, if you think about it, and you've probably seen the pictures of the cochlea, right? Which is the this like snail shaped, really elaborate organ, which. I mean, from a developmental perspective, it's just so cool how this curling snail shape ultimately just develops in your ears, and it's so critical for, for you know, auditory function to be able to 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 listen to things, right? And it's pretty well conserved as well, evolutionary. So this, uh, but the key in the cochlea 
are these mechanosensitive hair cells, which are responsible ultimately for hearing. But as we know, they're they're vulnerable to damage by, you know, genetic mutations, environmental insults, going to rock concerts for too long, going to Taylor Swift concerts, I suppose, for too long, whatever you want to do, Dylan. Um, so you gotta keep a gotta keep an eye out on your hair cells in your ears to make sure you can you can hear for for the rest of your life. And um there's of course, this is a modeling story, so we need tissues for modeling defects in hearing right and so this is what they're hoping to do the develop a new cochlear tissue system to make uh, studying some of these defects a little bit easier so organoids is what happened here and what was the model system that was used and they created uh basically stem cell derived pluripotent stem cell derived cochlear organoids um pretty amazing story here uh, a lot of applications a lot of implications for studying genetic defects of hearing loss um and it's it's a beautifully conducted study because initially they figured out that time timed modulations of sonic hedgehog and wind signaling can promote the proper gene expression during the differentiation process to ultimately drive proper expression in these otic progenitors. Um, and then they basically ventralized these otic progenitors, which ultimately gave rise to these really beautifully patterned epithelia cells, epithelia that are ultimately containing those great hair cells that are so important for hearing. Uh, they had the right morphology as well, and they did some really cool electron microscopy to actually validate the morphology of these hair cells. Really neat. Um, and uh, they did some, uh, of course, you know, single cell sequencing, looking at their morphology, looking at their marker expression, and also functionally looking at some of the the electrochemical signaling that happens in the in the hair cells to make sure that it's consistent with what you would see in the real deal. Um, and also, there's different subsets of hair cells in the cochlea. It's not just all the hair cells. There's inner and outer, and they're able to kind of distinguish those as well. So ultimately, just a really cool model system that's taking um, some of the existing, this is not the first time that a model of the inner ear has been developed, but I think this is, per, they call it, they say it themselves, it's a high fidelity cochlear organoid, okay? So specifically cochlear cells containing uh, the, the hair cells. And I think it's a really useful model system for studying hearing defects, auditory defects. I don't know what happens if you take these organoids to a rock concert or to a Taylor Swift concert. Will they just start freaking out? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, stupid question. But hey, a lot of cool applications that you can work on with these things. Yeah. The, I mean, not, not goes without saying the applications, translational, you know, potential, all amazing. But I get drawn in in these stories by the imagery that you, you talked about it's so beautiful and here that next level with the electron micro microscopy showing like how almost indistinguishable uh these structures are to to the bona fide and and i i can remember remember when we first met arun in 2019 that isscr and carl kohler the power of an image he came with that his talk and show the hair coming for the organoid and the people went crazy. They were like chasing him down the street. I was trying to ask him if he would like say something for the show. Cause we were covering the ISSCR for the first time then. And I couldn't even get, it was like a rock star. Um, and again, that was the power of the image. He's moved on. He had that big story in nature a few years back with the hair bearing uh, skin cells from IPS, a big drop. And then also at the ISSCR this year, I saw one of his, Trainees talking about amnioids. So he's clearly diversifying, but it all started 
with Ari Hishino deserves uh, a lot of props for um, setting up this system and obviously here continuing to build on it. But uh, the images, Arun, I mean, just blew my mind. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, a, a picture says a, a, a thousand words, as they say, and videos say a million. And it even goes back to what we were talking about with the zebrafish, right? I mean, I think in general, we're all, as scientists, we're all visual people, I'm generalizing there, right? But um, if you can convey that conclusion using such a beautiful way, like, just, I'm just looking at these things right now, figure six, and like what you're talking about, these things are, to, to my untrained eye, seem almost indistinguishable from the real thing. That's incredible. I mean, to have that sort of resolution, that sort of fidelity in the differentiation process, maybe the ones on the right are a little bit more fine-tuned, a little bit finer. I don't know, but I'm I'm pulling hairs, I suppose. <laughs> Unintended. Yeah, I mean, we're getting there. We're getting there. That I guess that's the upshot is that we're getting there. We're almost close to to replicating the the, mir the miraculous fidelity of biology and nature. And uh, the story I'm talking about here is kind of <laughs> I don't know about replicating. It's kind of maybe going beyond a little bit uh, Frankenstein theme here. I got a story from uh, Steve Goldman, who's a legend in uh, neuro. Uh, and as you might expect uh, from the lab, this is about glia. You know, glia, glial dysfunction, at least, is, is the basis of a lot of neurological conditions, um, or has something to do with them, at least, uh, including ALS, Huntington's, Parkinson's, even um, you know, psychological conditions like schizophrenia, bipolar, bipolar disease. Uh, glia are implicated. Um, and because it's glial dysfunction, of course, you know, the, this era of cell therapy, the idea that we could replace uh, the disease glia with or degenerate glia with uh, progenitor cells, glial progenitors, um, that's a hot idea. Uh, not a brand new idea, but it's been there since the inception of cells and cell therapy. Um, and particularly in the glia, because uh, they disperse and spread out they colonize the the host brain um, while giving rise to a lot of new astrocytes and oligos right and, and steve stephen goldman um he's been unraveling the the cellular plasticity of the human brain for decades you know upwards of three decades using fetal tissue but perhaps most famously uh known for transplanting uh fetal neural progenitors into rodent models of degenerative disease and showing this remarkable colonization of the host tissue in, in these so-called chimeric mouse brains, right? But uh, here's the, the challenge there. I mean, he's done it pretty much all, in all kinds of diseases, showing you get these fetal progenitors to get in there. But um, while the, these human fetal progenitors, they can replace the mouse counterparts in the host brain, uh, it's unclear if you can get human cells to replace other human cells, right? And this is a critical step to translation. You, you gotta show this um, and you gotta be able to, to demonstrate the kinetics and to what degree uh, this, is, this is capable and maybe even some mechanisms of replacement. Um, so in this story, this is a nature biotech story. So Stephen Goldman's lab, which I, I didn't know this, but I thought it was a Rochester but I see here he's also affiliated with the Center for Translational Neuromedicine in Copenhagen. Um, also, he, he runs a program at Santa Biotechnology that's based on pretty much this, uh, this tech. Um, 
So Santa really covering their bases between this Sona Schrepper, all the work they're going there. They're really hitting the, the preclinical stuff hard. And clearly this is a, a, a block in the wall, so to speak, um, toward that end. They uh, wanted to see if they could get human to replace human, right? So how do they do that? They engrafted these healthy... So And bear in mind, this is all derived from human pluripotent stem cells, right? And isogenic. They engrafted healthy... Uh, well, first, they took uh, neonatal mice and they engrafted their brains with uh, these IPS-derived or ES-derived uh, progenitors to, to create a, a mouse with a chimeric brain. Um, those were diseased. And then later in the adult, then they implanted again and wanted to measure if then those, the, the uh, in the adult context, those diseased uh, neurons could be replaced, right? So they used um, these cell lines that had been created to recapitulate Huntington's disease as a disease line, and then isogenic control. And what they found is that the control outcompeted ultimately eliminated the Huntington disease counterparts and repopulated the host uh, striatum with with healthy glial cells. Uh, and then they showed that for some mechanism using single cell seq, they showed that the, the dominant cells, there was a specific phenotype that was mediated by this axis of YAP1, MIC, and E2F that, that uh, identified the replacement cells, this dominant competitive cell. Um, and here, here was the, another key. They did this important control where they took uh, non-disease cells in the neonate. So they engrafted with healthy cells in the neonate, carry a healthy chimeric brain, and then the adult, they then engrafted again with the same cells and they found differently labeled so they could distinguish them. And they found that the, the cells engrafted at the adult, they replaced even the healthy cells. And based on that concluded that that success, the competitive success is dependent really on the age of the cells. You know, fresh cells get in there and, and clear out the old, you know, haggard ones, um, which is, I think, appealing. I mean, therapeutically, there may be some caveats to there. You would worry about uh, how aggressive this competitive replacement is. But in terms of like therapeutic scope, we're talking about replacement, not just for disease, uh, glial, glia, um, and addressing those diseases, but all my ragged, beat up glia and my old ass brain we get in there too and replace them. So it's not just for diseased individuals, although that's probably the primary focus of this study, but really it opens the door to just this whole idea of the new replacing the old, a refresh for the brain, which is, I know, really far out, but I'm sure a lot of people at Santa are, are, are not not saying that. Well, I don't think it's as far as as you might think. And I wasn't really thinking about Santa. Uh, I was thinking more about Altos Labs because I mean that's sort of what they're focusing on is this whole idea of using the Yamanaka factors to to reverse aging, right? I mean, again, very far-fetched and we'll see what happens with some of the the studies that come out of there. But But you're right. I think this is one of those studies that unlocks a lot of doors. Um, and, uh, using younger cells is maybe that's a good thing when you're thinking about like pluripotent stem cell derived cells, for example, right? Maybe that's a, a net positive, I suppose. Um, and certainly, you know, thinking about a disease like Huntington's disease, which is so, so devastating where you need to throw the kitchen sink at the disease to, to figure out really how to, how to resolve it. Um, and I think this is a great study that's pushing that, you know, translational therapeutic envelope forward. 
yeah, you talk about pushing the envelope forward and and mention how devastating Huntington's is, is you know, I, I'm no ethicist and I'm not like on any boards deciding this panels and probably that's a good thing. Um, but I, I wonder, I mean, this seems very mature. Stephen Goldman has been doing this in, in these chimeric mouse brains, all kinds of permutations for a long time. We've got a IPS potentially der derived cell product. These people have very poor prognosis and not a lot of time. So I, I could envision that these cells could be in trial, you know, within years i think it could be a matter of years before these cells would be tested or at least i think the rationale maybe is there but i don't know maybe that's also far-fetched i'm pretty naive when it comes to that things but i'm hopeful and, and i bet a lot of patients out there would be psyched uh, to, to take a whack at it um maybe something we can talk with our guest uh today before we get there i got a quick message from stem cell technologies if you use organoids have a look at the stem diff cerebral organoid differentiation kit by stem cell technologies to take your own mini brains to the next research frontier. This 3D culture kit reliably mimics early brain development so you can focus on your next questions instead of troubleshooting. The possibilities are endless and the future begins now. Learn more at www.stemcell.com slash cerebral organoids. All right, everybody, joining us today from the Montreal Neurological Institute at McGill University, also known as the Neuro, we have Associate Professor and Director of the Early Drug Discovery Unit there, Dr. Tom Durkin, who oversees a team of 40-plus research staff and students committed to applying patient-derived stem cells towards the development of phenotypic discovery assays and 3D neuronal organoid models for neurodegenerative and neurodevelopmental disorders. The long-term strategy there is to identify new personalized precision therapies that can be applied toward building clinical trials on a dish. Dr. Durkin, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. We're very happy to have you. Almost two years ago, you took the lead as director of the Early Drug Discovery Unit at the Neuro. Tell us about this unit, the scope of the work there, and how it fits into your broader research ambitions. Yeah, so we actually kind of started from a smaller group actually back in 2015. It was, uh, we kind of called it at the time the MNI's IPSC CRISPR platform. And then over the kind of last few years, we kind of started to grow and expand as we would partner more with academic groups, with industry partners. And then I think around 2019, almost pre pandemic, this kind of almost changed into what we now call the Neuro's Early Drug Discovery Unit or EDDU. And that's actually where we kind of took over as director from Ted Fong, who's a, he's the scientific director of the Neuro. He really was, him and me were instrumental in kind of getting it off the ground. And then since then, in the last two years, it's been kind of getting things evolving since COVID, reopening the group, building the team to where it is and building new partnerships. So it's been an exciting time. Yeah, and it's definitely a very relevant area of study that you're focusing on right now. And you've been at the Neuro or the Montreal Neurological Institute for more than 15 years. It's uh, it's a pretty incredible institute that many folks outside of Canada might not actually be aware of, you know, as a research and medical center that's completely devoted to neuroscience specifically. And it's it's actually been around since 1934, believe it or not. I actually didn't know that. Um, so tell us a little bit about the the history of this really unique place that, you know, folks outside of Canada may not know about and what inspired you to actually start up your own laboratory at the MNI. 
Yeah, it really has a rich history to Neurowitz. People may not know it's an integrated hospital research center. It was founded by Walter Penfield back, as he said, in the 1930s, 40s. It's been around almost 80 years. I can't remember the exact date now, but uh, he had this vision of, you know, that as patients come into the neuro, they get world-class clinical care. And then from that, we can actually then start to understand why are these diseases happening from Parkinson's to ALS to epilepsy. And for me, it was actually when I started in 2007, I was really what kind of inspired is this idea that you could go somewhere where you're working with world-class researchers, but you're really actually the people that you're trying to help actually are coming through the door of that building on a day-to-day basis, the patients. And it's been kind of a joy actually to actually, we work a lot with both clinicians, we work with researchers, and we get to see all kinds of perspectives. And it kind of gives you that in a way that kind of, why do you want to, why do we want to come to work in the morning? You know, we kind of do it because disorders of the brain, there's been very little in terms of therapies for it in the last 20 years, 50 years, for instance, oncology, we've seen this explosion in therapies in recent years. We're only starting to see kind of the tip of the iceberg when it comes to disorders like Alzheimer's, ALS have had a couple of new treatments recently. So I think now it's, it's kind of inspiring to be at this place now to think maybe for these patients, we're actually going to be able to kind of hopefully bring some new therapies in the next decade ahead. And that's really what kind of, in a way, excites me when I get up in the morning to kind of go to work with this team. Yeah, you said it, inspiring. I've I've always thought about, you know, these integrative centers like the neuro, that, that actual contact with the patients, it really motivates you. It also, I mean, gives you some context for the, the scope of these neuro, neurodegenerative conditions or whatever degenerative conditions, particularly in the stem cell field where you you have uh, potential to to really affect change uh, in in these tragic conditions for which there really have been few treatments that are effective. So I can imagine it really must be an inspiration for you waking up every day to go to work. And another way that the neuro is, is I think, really unique and different and, and a leader um, is a, a major principle there is the practice of open science. You've got your own lab notebook posted online. You were an early adopter of posting in preprint servers and have been an outspoken advocate for the open science movement, which is growing across the scientific community. Can you tell us about the rationale for this practice, just for those of us who are uninitiated or fewer and fewer nowadays? Um, and also more and more, it, it, what are some of the tangible benefits, either to your own work or to other groups at the neuro or other groups you know, at large that, that are, what are some of the tangible benefits that are conferred by this open science movement? Yeah, so in a way, open science really just means how do you make your science available and open? And in a way, a lot of us scientists were already kind of doing this, or we were doing it naturally for many years. It was uh, when our director, Guy Rouleau, came in, he kind of saw the need to do something transformational. And that was really where open science came in, that as researchers, clinicians, we need to make our reagents or technologies available to try to reduce the restrictions around what we're doing to make stuff go faster. And that's really the goal of everything a lot of us try to do is how do we accelerate the discovery process? If it takes almost 10, 12 years for a compound to go or a therapy to get approved, that's a long, long time for people to wait. So when it comes to us and our group, we were kind of already naturally in the early 2010s, we would make plasmids and we would just send it out to a researcher. In a way that's open science, it's just, to have a framework around that to make it that 
okay, I'm not just doing it informally, but now we have a framework that every cell line we make, it can then be disseminated to any group in the US, in Europe, for instance, that they can access our induced pluripotent stem cells. They can actually see how we work with these cells. So often when you talk to companies, when you talk to academics, there's this whole almost mystique of like, how do you do your cell culture? Oh, you do it like that. Well, I do it like this. And for us, we kind of took the mystique out. We say, you know, you wonder how we do our IPSC work. Here's the video. You can actually see our people within a cell culture hood working with it. So if you have problems with how we do the techniques, you can actually see it right away. You can comment on it. And I think that's really what we've tried to get to is how do you make the technologies? How do you make the reagents? How do you make your methodologies available? And I think the preprint is really important too. I was I was having a conversation the other night with someone. It's almost like when I put my paper out in preprint now, I feel like it's done and dusted. Like I still do the peer review process and we have to get reviewed, but it feels good when it goes out into the open. People can see it. They give you feedback on it almost instantaneously. And then you often, the big selling point for all of this is if you make more of your stuff available, it actually has benefited by bringing attention to us. We're a Canadian institution, so often we get hidden from people where not everyone knows about us, like the Harvards or the Stanfords of the world. We're kind of up in the north of Canada. So then by doing this type of stuff of open, trying to do something a bit different, companies in Boston that hear about you and they go, oh, you work with IPSCs. Do you want to partner? We have something we'd like to test, but we want to do something new and different. And so really that's the crux of what it's helped. It's helped bring partnerships to our group and it's helped grow and sustain it so that that's the key to a lot of it is by having more people work with you we can get the work done faster but then by making the stuff available we can get the tools into other people's hands mm. and i think our boss girulo said it best once years ago he said if i have a tool or reagent and somebody gets it and they bring a therapy to clinic he goes I'm not going to get angry about that. He goes, I'm going to be delighted because you had the idea to get something done in a way that got a therapy to a patient faster because I can only do so much in a 24-hour period. So we have to now build and rely on the scientific community to get this stuff done faster. And the more we share, the more we get things done better and the patients want this. Yeah, it's it's definitely an honorable mission. And it's nice to see the scientific community in general embracing open science to the level that they have these days. And I think COVID and the pandemic actually accelerated that a bit with the, you know, so many of these preprint articles related to the COVID being posted just so rapidly early on during the pandemic. And I think uh, these are all positive developments. And, you know, Dalen and I don't pretend to be neuroscientists. You're, of course, a neuroscientist, but I did actually once work in a neuroscientist lab during my postdoctoral years. I actually trained with Clive Svensson here at Cedar Sinai. And so I understand that there's this kind of dichotomy between the two different forms of ALS. So, you know, ALS is really one thing that you focus on a lot in your lab, this sporadic and familial ALS that comes up, right? I mean, sporadic disease can be tougher to, to nail down, especially with in vitro models. And I think this is a lot of the work that you're doing right now. But have you done additional work in sporadic ALS in this particular sub area that's been more elusive to, to nail down when it comes to the mechanisms of the disease? So tell us a little more about your, your ALS modeling work. Yeah, I think the way we've, we focus on two areas with ALS really. One is the genes in the familial kind of like the familial forms initially to kind of give us a better handle on 
almost modeling the disease better in a dish, but also moving outside of neurons. So we've really kind of wanted to, in the last few years, kind of build a lot of workflows and expertise in the lab around uh, glial cells, so microglia, astrocytes, uh, building kind of mo models almost that are neuromuscular in nature. I think we've kind of got a lot of that up and running now. And in a way, it's almost like a confidence building exercise. We know that sporadic ALS is there. We know it's a very tricky thing to model because you need lots of controls. You need lots of patients. So now we're actually starting to gear up to do that. We have over 40 sporadic ALS patients within the Neuros Biobank. I think in the next year, we're going to start making most of these into iPSCs and then start making them into different cell types from motor neurons to microglia to astrocytes so then we can actually start to discern if there's differences and we're not going to do it by ourselves we have certain companies uh can't really say who but that they have these pipelines and engines that as the data gets fed in they can start modeling it and creating kind of stratification and computational ways to discern why does this patient maybe have this type of als and maybe why does this sporadic patient develop in another way yeah, it's been a great mystery in ALS. I mean, the, it's unfortunately that most of the the cases are these sporadic, right? But I, for one, I mean, I was a skeptical, although maybe not outspoken, that we'd ever be able to model these really complex neurological conditions in cells in a dish, just because, you know, the brain, it's not just the complexity of an organ. It's kind of like the meta thing of consciousness. I just, it seemed unapproachable to me. Um, so I've been very impressed with all the strides that have been made. Um, some in your own lab. I mean, a major facet of your own work, as we were discussing, is using iPSCs to model neurodegenerative disease. Um, and I want to dig a little deeper there on a, on a preprint that you actually have up on the bioarchive right now that compares homozygous knock-in of an ALS-associated variant of, of TARD-BP with isogenic controls. And I mean, this is the, the, the brilliant experiment now that's afforded by IPS combined with CRISPR, right? You're able to have these really carefully controlled experiments with the control uh, isogenic cell lines there. Um, but notably here, and this is what really jumped out to me, the comparison of these two lines showed no overt cell intrinsic uh, death in, in the mutant line, but rather this progressive decline in the neuronal activity in cultures. I, I want to ask you to elaborate on on this result and the clinical clinical ramifications, but also just generally speaking, maybe um, you could you could weigh in on how this uh, speaks to the ability of these cell lines to model uh, the co complexity of disease. Would you say that this is an in vitro manifestation that's not an artifact? But maybe, it, it, or that there's there's facets of the disease, like while there's cell intrinsic death in vivo, you won't see it in vitro. How, how do you reconcile the kind of dichotomy in the, in these phenotypes and observations? Not a minute. You did your discovery work. It's like it's good to see. So that I got it before I answer the question. I do actually have to give a good shout out to my my student Sarah Latin. So this is a lot of her work. She's been. Honestly, like she started right before the pandemic and then once the lab reopened, she really kind of worked so hard in this that we're very proud. Like when this went online, we were very proud of this work. I think what this shows is almost like people often have this misconception of Parkinson's or ALS. You know, I have the disease, so I should see neurons die. And often they don't die. Like they often survive perfectly fine in culture. And then that raises the question, are we modeling the disease or are we just producing an artifact? 
for me, I kind of think a lot of it is that we kind of are capturing a little snapshot of the disease in the dish that when you kind of have a brain from a person, these diseases are coming along because they're 30, 40, 50 years old. So you have an aging component that we're kind of missing. But I do think that there's probably a certain amount of stress and other factors going on earlier on, but the neurons stay alive. Uh, and I think with the mutations themselves, we've almost kind of given them a little push along to say, okay, you've got this homozygous mutation that's really linked to ALS uh, within this third VPP gene. What's going to happen? Will they die off? And we were kind of surprised initially, like, oh, they actually don't die off. And this is consistent actually with zebrafish model work too. So Gary Armstrong at the neuro has these mutations and they don't see that the neurons die off either. And between the two of us, we're actually, the interesting thing we are noticing is synaptic dysfunction seems to be coming up quite a bit in the different models. And I think this has been kind of seen with some of these disorders that before the neurons die off, the synapses and the neurons become a little bit dysfunctional. And then in a way, maybe later on as the person ages or the disease progresses, then you will start to see more of a breaking apart of it all. Maybe uh, there's an immune response or maybe there's some sort of inflammation that comes along. And I almost think it's like it's a two-hit effect hmm. that you kind of have. It's almost like building a house. It's like, you know, you have a dodgy window, but then the wind blows in and the whole window falls in. I kind of sometimes see it that it's like that, that maybe there's a developmental component, but then over the years, everything is fine. And then something comes along and then now you start to lose neurons. It might not happen in everybody because it's a these are sometimes quite rare disorders, but maybe there is something there that we need to find. So that could be, I think that's something we're going to think about later on with these programs is, can we start giving them secondary insults to combine with the genetic insult and see now we'll see neuronal loss, but because we have the first effect, at least we know something is going on. Mm. Yeah. I think the, the two hit hypothesis is something that's come up not only in neurodegenerative diseases, but other diseases as well. So I think it's a, it's a relevant analogy to make. And one other thing that I think, you know, comes up a lot is this concept of cell maturation, especially with IPSC and their, their derivatives. It's a, it's an interesting concept to consider in the context of, you know, neurodegenerative disorders, which can arise later on in life. And with iPSC-derived neuronal cells and iPSC-derived cell types in general, like I'm a iPS cardiomyocyte biologist, so this is relevant to me as well. I mean, these are immature cells. And everybody who works with iPSCs knows that this is a limitation with these cells. Uh, and with these cells being as immature as they are, how do you reconcile or justify modeling this late onset neurological disorder like ALS with an immature IPS derived cell type? Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So many years ago, we got into brain organoids. And I remember it used to keep me up a little bit at night. We're like, oh, God, we're kind of trying to model Parkinson's in a brain organoid model. Will this even work? Because for the years, everyone always used to model or take brain organoids for neurodevelopmental disorders and we were kind of had the idea what if we just have a gene mutation and we make these midbrain organoids and you just grow them for several months and this is work from a postdoc with myself Ted Fauna Dr. V. Muhammad and she really advocated she says with this model they have all the cell types I bet we're going to get certain hallmarks of the disease and we said okay let's try it the worst that will happen is that it really doesn't work but for somehow and Thankfully, it worked very nicely. It led to our brain communications paper was that we saw over, took about 170 days, 
But with the mutation that's within Parkinson's of synuclein triplication, you got these synuclein aggregates formed. So one hallmark of Parkinson is protein inclusions. We got that. And then you left it grow for longer. And now you started to see neurons dying off. So dopaminergic neurons. So now we saw the second hallmark of these. So in a way, it's like from this model itself, we were able to really kind of recapitulate a lot of what you would see within the disease. And that's for Parkinson's. People are doing this for uh, Alzheimer's. They've seen it with APOE and stuff. So I think it's a valid criticism that people often throw at us. It's, you know, you're growing cells or only a few weeks old. But I think if you hit the right kind of almost ingredients or recipe with specific gene mutations, you can add specific stressors. You can really capture or recapitulate a lot of what's going on in the brain in a really accelerated manner. Because you can't have a grad student come in and say, okay, here's your cell line. Uh, in 40 years time, you're going to do your experiment and then hopefully get your PhD to pretty much run out the door. So I think that's where we we kind of have to say is how can we accelerate these things in a, you know, 170 days actually is a long time. But in the grand scheme of things, it's much shorter. People often grow mice for one or two years and mice die within two to three years. And we've used those for decades to recapitulate the, the disease. So I think these neurons, organoids, I think there's ways to kind of stress them, accelerate the aging, or even just kind of, you know, direct them along the disease pathway to potentially get these disease phenotypes. And sure, only a couple of weeks ago, the first, uh, or it wasn't the first, it was just another kind of trial has gone on in phase one, two. Uh, I'm not sure, I can't remember the name exactly of the drug now, but literally all the data came from iPSC-derived motor neurons that now they've been able to take into the patient model. So people are almost going... They recognize the validity of the model, and now they're going into trials within humans, which I think is a huge step. Ten years ago, I don't think they would have done that, but things have become more standardized now since then. Yeah, I've got to laugh about the uh, the forty year timeline for the postdoc. I mean, sounds outrageous, but I, I know some some postdocs have, have have come pretty close to that, to be honest. Um, switching gears a bit, uh, you know, there's this idea of funding I want to talk about for a minute. Um, you have this research partnership with the Michael J. Fox Foundation uh, for Parkinson's research, which has a unique model intent, not just on funding breakthrough research, but also accelerating the trial of emerging therapies and advocating for Parkinson's patients living with the disease today. I mean, Michael J. Fox has been an icon for not just Parkinson's, but just for cell therapy and IPS research you know, the world over so prominent. And, you know, just recently, I think his, his, he had a fall, it was in the news, everyone's paying attention uh, to what goes on with this foundation, because he's such a great um, ambassador, and I think advocate for the cause. Um, and in the US, uh, at least, it used to be that private money was critical to working with pluripotent cells at all, right? Because work wasn't allowed within the more traditional funding mechanisms like the NIH. Uh, but those restrictions have loosened vastly, mostly because of uh, induced pluripotent stem cells. What role does a private research funder like the Michael J. Fox Foundation play in supporting stem cell research these days for you in Canada? Is it um, unique from your other funding apparatus or mechanisms, or uh, is it you know just more money? I don't think the... I think the one thing that we've been thankful for as the Fox Foundation is they've been such a big supporter. I think they recognize that to solve these diseases, you have to take risks. I think with Michael J. Fox, like I was uh, growing up in the 80s, I actually loved all those movies, Back to the Future, uh, Teen Wolf, and so on. 
And so I remember like when we heard about his diagnosis coming up as a teenager, I was like, oh, that's, it's quite sad. But then in a way he, he's become such a big advocate for the field of Parkinson's. I know he had the new movie out there recently still. And it kind of really, by him raising awareness, it brings people to, in a way, it, people then learn about it and then they go, oh, okay, the stuff that we need to try, we need to do certain things differently. I think that's where the Fox Foundation has come in, that they're saying that there's a wider community and in a way, they're trying to do stuff in an open way too. Like uh, we've had projects with them where it's been making just tools. So uh, making cell lines, for instance, we've got a funding from them at the moment to do that. Uh, we've worked with kind of associate partners where antibodies has been a big problem. Uh, like everybody works with antibodies. 80% of the time, the antibodies are bad or they don't work, but we still use them. So kind of a whole, how do you validate these tools and make sure we're working with the right ones? And then... We've gone even further upstream to actually test molecules and therapeutics. So they see this as a whole pipeline of what they're trying to fund and get stuff to into the clinic and to bring in both the funders and the academics. And it really is kind of an open partnership. Uh, I think a lot of the foundations, we've been funded recently from ALS Canada and there's been like the ALS Alliance and the MNDA and they really kind of, they're they're almost becoming more active partners. It's not like they just cut you a check and say, here you go. We'll talk to you in two years. They really have check-in meetings and they actively encourage you. They bring you into different meetings. You get to meet the patients. You get to meet the other researchers. So they're trying to actively encourage the directions of where the field should go. And I think they should be applauded for it because it's not just them, but other people in the kind of philanthropy and giving field, they see what's going on. And they often say, you know, we have CAHR in Canada. You have NIH in the US. There's all these groups. They can only fund, you know, one in five to one in 10 researchers. And that means that like nine out of 10 researchers are left unfunded. Great work is left on the floor, unable to be done. So I think these new avenues give people a chance to take risks because if we don't take risks, we don't fail. If we don't fail, we don't learn. So I think that's kind of been the key with the Fox Foundation. They're, they're okay if the stuff doesn't work, but they want to see why it didn't work so we can learn, iterate, and build on it for the next kind of projects to come from it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really well said. And I think they are just one example of many philanthropic organizations in the neuroscience field that are so supportive and so critically supportive of the research that's done in, in this area. And neuroscience, in, in my mind, is is the field that really leads the charge when it comes to so much innovation in biomedical research and new technologies and biomedical research that have emerged, especially in the last 15 years. I mean, we can talk about all these cool technologies that first emerged in neuroscience, you know, potentially even optogenetics recently is one thing that's that's come up uh, from Carl Dysroth at Stanford and colleagues. And then there's secondarily adopted these technologies like optogenetics and translated into other fields. Um, so what recent technologies in neuroscience are you the most excited about in part because they, they intersect with IPSC technology, for example, um, or, you know, other technologies that you're just really interested in? I think one of the big ones is really the single cell sequencing side of things like uh, between it and the CRISPR tools, they've really kind of, like, they've really exploded it, but let us do a lot of stuff. Uh, I remember 20 years ago when I was doing my grad school, like we could barely clone a plasma. Now you can CRISPR edit a cell line, uh, you can add in reporter genes, uh, you can take thousands of cells from an organoid and you can look at each transcriptome from a cell line. And I think that's really the critical technology that's being combined with the cells now. So when you have neuronal cultures that are 
Amosine is pure, combined up to a more complex organoid model, you can really capture all the cells and then you can start to understand, okay, from this cell line versus this cell line, is there gene signatures that are coming out of it that we would miss otherwise? I was compared to the analogy of like, I like Skittles. So if you take a bag of Skittles and squash it together, it still tastes nice in Skittles. But if you eat red Skittles or yellow Skittles or green Skittles, they each have a little bit of a, a combined or maybe a different flavor. Or maybe I'm just, you know, I just react differently to the color and they taste all the same. But it's a little bit like that. If you have a, an organoid and you take out the astrocytes or the neurons or the and the microglia, you can then say, okay, maybe there's different stuff going on in each of these cells that squash together, you miss. And the key to all of this is now people are getting postmortem tissue. So the brains of patients, spinal cords, and now we're actually able to kind of combine and contrast the two together and almost see, okay, this is what we're seeing in the stem cell model. This is what we're seeing really within real patient tissue. Now we're actually can start to compare and contrast. Is my target real or is it not a real? Maybe it's an artifact and it's only showing up in the stem cell model. But if it shows up in the patient models, then you may actually have a, a new partnership or a target to really go after for developing therapies. So I think for me, it's the single cell is the big thing that we're pursuing. I think there's cool things that are coming out in terms of AAVs, I think is going to be big. I think it's already big, but I think the application of AAVs for gene therapies has a huge potential there. I think high definition multi-electrode array, I think that could be a game changer. I think it's just a matter of how it's applied in the right way and building these connected maps. So I think it's just a matter of how do we apply the tools? And then in a way, it's like finding the right people to do it. Because you kind of said something earlier. It's like, oh, you're a neuroscientist. But the truth is, I trained as a cell biologist. I, I used to work with fish and plants. And then gradually, I worked on centrosomes. And now somehow I ended up in this field of neuroscience that it was a huge steep learning curve, but then everything is based on if you can understand how cells work and how to image it and just poke and prod at it, you can almost understand why a disease is happening. Yeah, I agree with you 100% there. You know, it seems like uh, we've reached a tipping point in both the resolution and the precision, right? And I think that's what's going to govern the science moving forward, you know, whether it's a single cell seek or a spatial seek, you know, I just saw in the news the other day, they, they did an x-ray of a single atom, right? And as you alluded to there, the delivery, you know, more, more precise delivery to cells or tissues, I think is, is uh, taking advantage of tropisms or CAR-T or, you know, whatever it may be, it seems like we can see it all and we can deliver it very, very well with these smart uh, packages. It's a really exciting time, um, and particularly in your field um, where you guys are really moving uh, quickly. Um, thanks so much for sharing all that with us. Before we let you go, we got a couple of peripheral questions for you first. I mean, you just said it. You weren't a neuroscience, but you sound like one. Uh, if you weren't a scientist at all, what would what would you be doing with your life? Uh, I'd always be a barman in Ireland, to be honest. I've always had this treat. It always seemed like such a relaxing job that every day you would just go pour pints and talk to people. And I was kind of, and I think I always still have that dream a little bit. Like maybe if I retire as a scientist, I'll go have my own bar or pub somewhere in a, a small island where you can pour the pint and you sit down and you can talk to people. I love it. I mean, open that bar. You know, we'll call it negative results. 
or, or impossible <laughs> outcomes or some scientific. I'll have a pint with you there any day. Uh, finally, what is the best piece of advice you've ever been given, either professional or not? Yeah, it came when I started grad school, actually. Uh, it was a Jack Duman was the chair of our department. And he told us all, it was like, take your work seriously. Don't take yourself seriously. We kind of always it stuck with us to this day. It's any new grad student staff to work with us. It's like, you know, when you come in to do your work, take it seriously. But don't become so seriously and wrapped up because of what you do. You know, go have fun on a day-to-day -day basis. If you have fun and enjoy what you do, then you'll do great work. So... I was it stuck with me for 20 years and I tried to let everybody know that too that works with us talking about good work thank you for sharing yours with us and uh can't wait to see what you do next Tom uh we really appreciate appreciate you talking with us um, thanks for having us it's been great take care that brings us to the end of our show don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or by email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Thank you so much for joining us. We might see a few of you, a few of you in person at this live recording at the NYSEF about a week from air but if we don't you'll hear from us in a couple weeks until then thank you so much for listening